welcome to Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast where you can listen to our latest sermons filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're in the car, on the couch, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Well, thanks again so much for being with us. We are continuing today in our study through the New Testament letter. We called it a book, but it was really a letter uh, written by an early follower of Jesus who was actually the brother of Jesus named James. And James was one of the earliest church leaders, and the letter that bears his name is one of the, the earliest things that was written in the New Testament. And it's this very practical collision or intersection of faith and life. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you're a Christian person, or a religious person, or however you even want to describe that, what we all encounter is a moment where the rubber has to meet the road, where what we say we believe is proven by how we live or how we don't live. And so so much of that was the case when James was writing. You know, I have this friend, and maybe you have a friend like this too, who I can always count on to one-up whatever story I'm telling. So if I'm sharing about something that happens, immediately this person will jump in and they'll share a story and they, they do it with the best of intentions and with a good heart. This person is my friend. But it's always a bigger story. It's always like a bigger thing that happened. And I have been tempted to at times to just like make up the craziest story I can possibly make up just to see if they'll try to top it with something else. And maybe you have a friend like that too. A number of years ago, there was a movie that came out called Catch Me If You Can, and it starred uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, and it was the story, a real-life story, of a character whose name was Frank Abagnale, and he was, in the 1960s, he grew up in Westchester County, New York, and he became known at a very early age as a master impersonator and a master forger. Before his 19th birthday, he had successfully uh, impersonated a Pan American Airlines pilot a doctor, a prosecutor, and had performed cons that were worth millions of dollars. By the time I was 19 years old, I hadn't done nearly as much as Frank Abagnale had done, but he was eventually captured and imprisoned, and that's really what the story of the movie was about. But when he was released, he went to work for the FBI and many companies and banks helping them avoid or capture forgers and impersonators just like him. When we would look at someone like Frank Abagnale, or maybe that friend that you have, or that friend that I have, we would describe those people as the ultimate big talker. A person who can talk way above the reality of what their lives are. Someone who can speak convincingly, and they can even win people's confidence, but underneath it, there's very little substance to back it all up. And so all of us can relate to this idea. Maybe not on the level of someone like Frank Abagnale, but we all know someone like this, or maybe we are one. Maybe we are that big talker, or maybe you know someone who they make a lot of promises, and they make a lot of commitments, and they have these aspirations of what's going to happen and how it's going to all work out, but when it's go time, they don't follow through. But the challenge that we experience is as frustrating as this can be in life, it's critical when it comes to our faith, and it extends to it more often than we would care to admit. Uh, Christians, especially here in America, maybe all, at all times throughout history, but especially here, we are known as a people far more for what we are doing, or far less for what we are doing, and far more for what we're saying. So we're known as people who talk a lot, It's we know what our positions are on various issues, but when it comes to how much 
action actually follows those things up, it's a lot less. And this can be in any number of areas. And so this is a widespread perception, and there's actually some data that, that backs this up. George Barna, who is a researcher and who does research largely uh, related uh, to the intersection of faith and life here in America, he did a study and he discovered this. Four out of five Christians, self-identified Christians, so people who have said, I am a Christian, they say that they've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that's still important. So it wasn't just a prayer they prayed back then. It's still relevant and it's still important to their life. But when it comes to putting feet on that commitment, the statistics are far more sobering. Only about one in five of those same people are personally committed in investing in their relationship with God on an ongoing basis. One in eight, 12%, recognize the true emotional impact of their sins and personal flaws on themselves and those around them. So there's just not a lot of awareness about how their lives or how our lives impact the lives of other people. And only about one in 10 of this self-identified group of Christian adults have been motivated by their faith to share it with others, to serve others, or especially to self-sacrifice for others. And so it seems that the data tells us that there's, we're all about our faith until there's some personal cost involved or there's some risk, and then the field narrows considerably. You know, we talk a good game, but when things get messy or they get costly or tough or unclear or the sands of the culture around us shift or we're confronted with hardship, things change radically. Now, that seems like an indictment of you and I. It's not a happy way to begin. But we discover, as sobering as these statistics are, that this is not a new problem. This is not a new issue. Living out a faith that has feet, meaning a faith that actually does things, it, it impacts our real lives and it impacts the world around us, has been a struggle since the very beginning of the Christian church. You know, last week we began this new series in the book of James, and really what James is doing is he's addressing the need for faith to be matched by action, to not get distracted or preoccupied with religious talk, but to respond by living differently. And as we said, this was one of the earliest writings in the New Testament, to the New Testament church, and already this characteristic is beginning to exist of talk that's not matched by action. And so this isn't just like a new thing that we experience here in our lives. This is part of the human condition for as long as we have record. And so the price of living out an active faith, when it gets higher, it challenges us and it changes us. And here for you and I, here in America, for very long periods of time, the Christian faith, or at least the Christian worldview, has honestly been one of the dominant worldviews in our culture. More recently, for many reasons, that's been beginning to change. There's some other voices, there's some challenges that are arising, but our response very often, and we see this in news media, we see this even in politics, our response is not to live out our faith boldly as much as it is to do what we can to hold on to the influence that we had, to hold on to power. And I'm going to say this, and this is going to sound challenging. Living out our faith boldly is not the same as dominating our neighbors with our point of view. There's a difference. And I think that's what James is going to speak to us today. We're not used to the position of being challenged. 
And so when James was writing, he was writing to a group of people who were beginning to experience pushback. Those very early days of following Jesus were now being balanced out by persecution, by pushback from the Jewish religious leaders and from the Roman Empire. And James, like us, was calling his early audience to do something different. And so today, we're going to look at James chapter 1, beginning at verse 13 through verses 27. And you can follow along in your Bible, on your app, or we'll have the words on the screen together. Let's read, beginning at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Remember the context. If you were here last week or you you heard the sermon or you look a few verses back, you'll see that James is talking about a group of people who has begun to experience difficulty. They've begun to experience trials. He says how you go through these things has a very specific impact on the fruit that it bears in your life. But one of the things I know that's true for me, and it's probably true for you too, is when we encounter difficulty in our lives, we are always tempted in a direction away from God. When difficulty shows up, temptation is right behind it. And maybe not in the classic sense that we think of temptation, you know, getting another cookie from the cookie jar. But we're tempted to settle or we're tempted to go in a different direction than the way of God because it gets us more of what we want. And James talks about that. There's this desire that we have within us that leads us somewhere. And it's not towards God. It's an evil desire and it bears fruit and that fruit brings death. And so when we're tempted, it takes us somewhere. And it's always a direction that's away from God. So whenever you encounter difficulty, you immediately have a fork in the road where you get to make a decision to stay on the path or to go in a different direction. James continues, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that what we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. And so what he says is the way of God, what comes from God is evident because of the fruit that it bears. It comes down from God and it is a good and perfect gift and we can have faith in that. And basically, what looks like God, what is in the way of God is from God, and what is in the way of the world around us or that other path that you can take, it looks nothing like the way of Jesus. You know, for the past couple months here at Long Hill Chapel, we've been studying through Jesus' coming out speech. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the way that the kingdom of God is different from the other ways. And so we can look at that example. We can look at that example and we can discover that there's continuity between the way of Jesus and where these things, these good and perfect gifts come from. And basically the idea is we cannot take the ways and the means of the world around us, put a Christian stamp on them and call them holy and call them God's way because God has a different way. And so then James gives us an application in verse 21. He says, therefore... Whenever you see the word therefore, you always have to ask the question, what is the therefore? Because he said what he's just said 
about temptation and about deception. Therefore, there's something that we have to do. You and I have to do so that we don't end up going in that direction. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So we and this original audience, this very early group of Christians, we all have this problem. We come in here or you tune in, you're coming to church or you, you, you log on and you hear the way of Jesus, but the moment we log off, the moment we walk out the doors, it is tempting for us to live our lives as if we've never heard it and to live them just like anyone else. James says when we do that, we're forgetting who we are. We're letting something else or someone else identify us. We're forgetting who we are, that we are God's. We're his children. We've been saved and redeemed by Jesus' work on the cross, and therefore our value system, the kingdom that we live in, the way that we live each day is absolutely different. And so we need to stop doing that. We need to stop letting these other things define us, therefore. Verse 25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but not only hearing it, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. In the age of social media, that is a sobering statement for all of us. And we'll come back to that in a couple weeks in more detail. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so there's a specific way that the way of Jesus, true religion, looks like. And it looks like this. And I think there's some important lessons that we can apply right out of this passage, right out of these words that were written so long ago, right into our lives and into our world today. And if we do them, it will help us be more than people who talk a good game, like the statistics tell us. It'll be people who help us live in this new way of Jesus. And the first thing is this, clear the field, clear the field. Verse 21, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And so what he's talking about is he's talking about the way and the practices of the world around that had slipped into the way and the practices of Christians. You know, as I grew up, we would read these passages and say, man, we should just not listen to secular music and we shouldn't go to movies and we shouldn't go dance and we, we shouldn't play cards and any number of things. And maybe you grew up in one of those traditions too. But it's so easy to check off that list and miss the ways that the way of the culture around us teaches us to react and respond. It's so easy for us to say, well, at least I don't do that, and I don't do this, and I don't do this other thing. But we still respond in the same pattern and the same character of the world around us. That's really what James is getting at here. And it's interesting that he uses a planting analogy. 
Most of us were a little less familiar with this, but many of his early audience, they would have been around uh, the, the planting and farming industry in the ancient world. And so he starts out by telling his listeners to clear some things out. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> you know, I was probably the pollen. I probably need to clear some things out as well. But I did this big project in my backyard in the past year, and we have about an acre of property. And when we arrived, the property had basically almost been, it had been neglected for many years. And so there were all these dead trees, and there was all this rotten wood, like piles of rotten wood and like random shrubs and bushes, and just, it was a wasteland in most of our backyard. And we bought the house, so we inherited this wonderful collection of things. You know, and my wife Grace and I, we had a vision for what we, we wanted to put in a patio and, and make it better for our kids and all that. But before we could start building anything, we had to clear a lot of things out. And so like any project like that, things actually begin to kind of look worse before they look better. We took down a lot of trees. We cleared out all the piles of rotted wood. And it just took a lot of effort and a lot of work just to get things ready to build something else. And for you and I, to receive what God wants to do in our lives, to receive what He wants to do in our hearts. It's not just that we add Jesus onto the pile of things that are already there. We need to clear some stuff out of the way so that we can make room for the new things to be planted and to grow. Some of you are gardeners, and you know that when you plant plants in your garden, you also have to clear weeds. And at the beginning of the season, you have to do that like in a big way, but you have to keep tending it. You have to keep at it. And that's really what Jesus is saying. He's saying, accept the word planted in you, but there's some things that you need to clear out of the way before that can happen. And so some of us have prayed a prayer, and we've accepted Jesus into our hearts as our Savior. But that's been planted in the midst of a lot of other stuff that needs to be removed. There's some things that need to change. The field needs to be cleared. There's some old habits that you need to reject. There's some sins that have been habitual and they're ongoing that you need to turn away from. And not only do you need to turn away from them, you need to create some accountability around yourself. Because when you just try to do this on your own, you're isolated and it's so easy to fall back into that. There's a few of you who have a relationship that's just toxic. It takes you in the wrong direction and at least needs boundaries if not to be ended all together. There's some influences that you have. And this isn't just like, you know, when you, you were in high school and you would hang out with the wrong friends. This is some things that you're watching on TV or some places that you're going on the internet or some sources of information that you are at the feet of that are taking you in a direction that is away from the direction of God. And so when you do these things, it creates margin for what God wants to do in you. Sometimes it's a pattern of thought, or it's a place that we go, or this, this defensive thing that we do or that we say. And those things need to be addressed. Like in my yard, if I hadn't cleared all that stuff out, and it was a lot of work, and it didn't seem like a lot had happened, but it set the stage for something better. And that's true in your life and in mind. So in order for transformed living to take root, we must intentionally make space for it. We can't just pile our faith on top of everything else and hope that it will grow. So clear the field, verse 21. 
The second thing is this, verse 22 to 25, check your mirrors. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. That's kind of a ridiculous picture. But when you check yourself in a mirror, you're checking your teeth. You're checking to see if your hair is okay, if whatever that thing you ate was is still with you. So when you go smile and shake someone's hand, you don't give them a little something extra because it's still in your teeth. You're checking to make sure your makeup is right. You're making sure your fly is zipped. You're just checking and you're referencing and you're saying, are all these things as I think that they are? What do mirrors help us do? They help us do a number of things. They help us see things as they really are. They help us notice some things that we weren't aware of. Mirrors give us perspective. You know, we may think we look one way, but we look in the mirror and we discover that something else is true. But there's something else that mirrors do if you drive around in a car is mirrors alert us to danger. Here in New Jersey, in the greater New York area, if we didn't have mirrors, we would be in a world of trouble for the people who are in our blind spots or who are about to cut us off or are coming up on us behind. And James is saying that the Word of God, the, not only the written Word of the Scriptures, but the reality and the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's really all that that Word, Word of God, in, in, encompasses, it does the exact same things. But he's saying don't just look in the mirror. Don't just look and say, oh, I looked in the mirror and go on your way. He's saying respond to it. Allow it to give you perspective in a way that you didn't have before. Do something about it. Now, for you and I, our challenge, our issue, it's not a lack of adequate information. We have mirrors of all shapes and sizes available to us if we'll take advantage of them. But what it is for so many of us is enough courage and motivation to act on the things that we discover. Our church, not just our church, Long Hill Chapel, but the church in the 21st century, it has more resources. It has more information. It has more communication than it's ever had before. And if you look at the statistics, it shows that overall we're a little less effective, even in spite of all of that, of accomplishing our mission. And so the question here is not just to know more, it's not just to be more aware, it's to allow what we know and what we've become aware of to change us. Let me make this really practical for some of us today. Some of you, you've discovered something about you, about how you respond. Someone's reflected you back to yourself, and you're running from that piece of information. You do not want to acknowledge that that is how you are. The information you are being given is a gift, and you can receive that gift, and you can do something about it, or you can pretend like it's not there. And James is saying that the wisdom of God, the wisdom of what we do, when we reflect into the Word of God, when we reflect into the community of faith that's been placed around us, when we read the Scriptures, when we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it reflects something to us that's not just there for us to observe and go on our way, but to actually begin to do something about. And then the last thing is this. Clear the field, check your mirrors, but put on true religion. Put on true religion. Do you have like an item of clothing or an accessory 
that you really like. Some of us, you know, we have a, a custom tailored shirt or a suit. Uh, ladies, maybe it's a designer bag or it's a certain pair of shoes. Or guys, it's a, a team jersey or, or basketball sneakers. Or maybe it's vineyard vines. I was not aware of vineyard vines before I came here to Long Hill Chapel again. And I discovered that it was this, this clothing outfitter that's in Martha's Vineyard. And I actually asked some questions. I'm like, do you have to go to Martha's Vineyard so you can wear it? And people told me no. And now I have a couple shirts by Vineyard Vines, and they're great shirts. But there's something that happens with us when we wear that thing. It makes us feel just a little bit special. It makes us feel just a little bit more significant and important. And you know, at some level, it's okay when that comes to clothing. But sometimes we do the same thing with our faith. Here's what James says in verse 26. He says, those who consider themselves religious, so you consider yourselves set apart, you're part of the family or the kingdom of God, and yet you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, you deceive yourselves, and your religion is worthless. And instead he says, here's what you should put on. Instead of putting that on, put this on, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And what happens with a Christian is so often our religion is like an accessory. It's like that article of clothing. We put it on, and it, it gives us a sense of identity. And this is actually the reason also when we discover that a sports figure or a musician or an actor or a politician or a celebrity talks, when they talk publicly about their faith, it makes us feel just a little bit more special because of the crowd that we're in. But here's the trouble. James actually defines true religion, acceptable religion, religion that our God our Father looks on favorably in the exact opposite terms. In verse 27, he talks about widows and orphans. But really, he's talking about something much bigger than that. In the early days of the church, especially when persecution was beginning to happen, what Christians would do is they would look for powerful people that they could ally themselves with. And we're going to come back to this thought in a few weeks as well. But they'd look for people who had political power or people who had wealth, and they would associate themselves with those people because it gave them the strength or it gave them the credibility that they felt like they lacked. It made them feel just a little bit more special. But James contrasts this, and he talks about widows and orphans who at that time weren't just people who had experienced tragedy. They were people who had no power and no influence whatsoever. In the ancient world, family was everything. And so if you were a widow, you had no options. If you were an orphan, you had no power, no influence. You weren't fashionable. You weren't in. Nobody wanted to associate with you. What James says is if you're going to follow in the way of Jesus, associate yourselves with the people and the causes who cannot do anything for you in return. They can't make you look good. They can't make you feel good. They can't enhance your status in any way. Spend yourselves and get nothing back and don't get corrupted by power and influence. Rather, take the power and the influence and the resources that have been given to you and pour them out in the service of others. My question for us is, in our time, who are the powerless? As Christians, as the church, it is so tempting for us to go in the direction of influence or power or wealth or leverage. 
and to associate ourselves with people who offer that to us. And instead, James says, go in the opposite direction than that. We have this reputation of being big talkers, of fighting for our rights and our influence rather than serving others, especially others who can't do anything for us, selfish, selflessly, and without regard for our own lot. So as we close today, how do we respond to this? We all find ourselves, I certainly find myself in this story, but we all find ourselves in different places here. Maybe for some of you today, there are things in your life that you need to clear out. Maybe you even need to go to the point of uprooting them, which is always a difficult, violent act. But clearing out the things that are cluttering our lives and making it impossible for us to live in the fullness that God has called us to. Maybe we need to clear the field. Maybe for some of us, we have become like connoisseurs of mirrors. We have so many mirrors. We have all the Bible studies. You know, we know all the books of the Bible. We have all the resources. We watch all the videos and the podcasts. We go to all the church services and Sunday school classes and small groups, and those are all great things. But really what we should do is to hear less and to do more to take instead of learning a new thing, to take what we already know and to put it into practice because it's become so easy to let knowing be the goal rather than doing, to check our mirrors. Or maybe we've been spending our influence in the wrong places and on the wrong people. We've been looking for the people who bring us a sense of security, who bring us a sense of power and control and mastery and credibility and fashionability. And we've been associating ourselves over there. We've even been lining up with some people who promise us those things in exchange for our allegiance. And James is saying, go in the opposite direction of that. Don't worry about that. You have God. Now you can pour yourself out in the world. Maybe we need to ask God to break our hearts for what breaks his, and take up the cause of whoever the powerless and the marginalized and the oppressed are in our time. Would it be that you and I, that Long Hill Chapel, that our church is so much more than talk, would we put feet to our faith, our actions, our reactions, and the way that we live? Would we see the fruit born, and would we see the way of Jesus begin to emerge in a powerful way that literally changes the world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, which is timeless. It is powerful. It is absolutely relevant to our lives. I pray for my friends who have gathered online in this space today, that we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers. We wouldn't just be people who talk a good game, but our faith would actually motivate us into action. And that action always has a cost to our way of life. Would you help us count that cost and joyfully embrace the way of Jesus, knowing that it is the way that leads to life. It is the way of true significance. It is the way that leads us on the path everlasting and shows a world around us who so desperately needs to hear, not only hear, but see, a different picture. Help us do that. Help us apply these words personally to our lives and then help us be faithful 
and being your people as we live out the kingdom of God in the moment in which we've been placed. I thank you for our time together and I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. To connect with us further, you can visit our website at lhcnj.net or on social media at LHCNJ and we'll be back next week with another sermon. Until then, have a great week and God bless. Thank you.